the smell of napalm in the morning. Who's the commanding officer here? Ain't you? I'm super happy to sit down and spend some time with Pete Horner, who I've, I've been fortunate to know for a handful of years and yeah. have been super excited to just track all the various projects you've worked on. But um, today we're going to talk about Apocalypse Now, what they're considering the final cut, the 40th anniversary edition, spending some time. Yeah. Happy, happy to be here. <laughs> so we're, we're here at Skywalker Sound up in uh, Marin County. This project, I, I think for folks just to go back, how we got to this place for you of working on this project, it, it started back in 97. Um, well, my my connection with Zootrope started in 97. The, Zootrope was my first uh, you know, full-time job out of uh, college. And uh, my first film experience, with, you know, Zoetrope's famous for taking people in who don't know what they're doing. And uh, a few of those people like uh, Randy Tom and uh, Richard Beggs and others have gone on to illustrious c- careers, but, you know, got their start with relatively little experience at, you know, Zoetrope. And, uh, you know, it's a great place to learn, learn on the job. And uh, that's what I did. I did eight years on staff at, at um, Zoetrope. And really, kind of was my film school. It's where I really I got my start, and I learned everything I know. Was that out of San Francisco or up in uh, up in Napa? In San Francisco. Okay. Well, our mix facility. I say our because right, I yeah, still yeah. feel connected. Uh, Zoetrope's mix facility is up in Rutherford in, Rutherford, in Napa right. Valley uh, on Coppola's property, um, and then he owns the Sentinel Building, which is the green flat iron down in San Francisco, and that was basically Zoetrope. That's the home base. But anytime we would do a mix. Uh, including that first project I did uh, in 97. It was uh, The Rainmaker. Uh, we went up to uh, Rutherford and, you know, mixed in the barn. What, what can you say just about um, being around that environment at that time? What was it like to be in in the room with some of those mixers? Obviously, like Walter Murch is Francis's right-hand man when it comes to sound. And obviously you mentioned like Randy Tom, who I believe came on maybe like around the conversation or Apocalypse uh, no was, Apocalypse was, was Randy's I, I believe was Randy's first uh, okay. uh, film yeah he uh, I think just walked in the door and handed a resume and ended up in the mix room uh, Randy can tell you the details but sure. uh, yeah certainly that was uh, his entry into he had come from radio right so but, but what what can you say of, of having kind of those people around you, especially when working on a Francis Ford Coppola film, I feel like there's a, a special nuance to how Francis treats sound and how he thinks about sound. And obviously having Randy and Walter Murch <laughs> yeah. will contribute. Yeah. Yeah. They're, uh, you know, the Bay Area is a, um, has an incredible legacy, you know, of film sound. And it was Zoetrope, Francis Coppola, and all of the people who followed him, George Lucas, Walter Murch, um, and and many others who decided to you know buck the system and move to San Francisco and that's uh, you know a history that I didn't know but I landed into and became a part of um, and you know it really kind of represents a different approach to film sound where film sound is valued uh, um, you know as part of the creative process and um, uh, is certainly you know. Walter Murch, Richard Beggs, um, mm-hmm. 
were sound designers that uh, came up through, you know, worked on Apocalypse Now. And uh, I worked with both of those early, uh, both of those um, guys early on um, in uh, the Virgin Suicides with Richard Beggs. And then uh, the conversation, we did a 5.1 remaster of the conversation uh, that Walter mixed and uh, I cut sound effects for and then was sort of a mixed tech. So I sat next to him and <laughs> absorbed everything <laughs> like a sponge. And then um, and then immediately after that, uh, pretty much was Apocalypse Now Redux, which, you know, Walter cut the picture and then... Um, oversaw the the sound design with um, Michael Kirchberger, I believe, mm -hmm. was the sound supervisor. No, that was 2001? That was about 2000. 2000, okay. I think it started maybe even 99, but sure. 2000, and we released, I believe, in 2001. Right. Um, and, and that was a DVD, right? That was for DVD, although it had a theatrical release. Right. Um, in, um, yeah, I think it was August of 2000. One <laughs> exactly. I'm sure those dates are burned into. Yeah, I mean those were certainly formative times, and I was just like learning so much at, at the time. But yeah, we was able to sit next to Walter while he remixed all of those scenes for Redux, um, and was part of the uh, original DVD release of Apocalypse Now. Um, you know, before it was Redux, we just simply transferred the elements. So I, you know, that's basically as far back as I go with. <laughs> the project and with Apocalypse Now. Um, I think something about this film is that when it came out, it obviously made an incredible statement. But then sonically, I, I feel like it also was kind of groundbreaking. I, I think looking back, the history of people who kind of knew about it was it was an opportunity to do something which I hadn't really done before, which is kind of what Coppola was always striving for, which was to have a surround, quasi-surround. I mean, it, no, so I mean, surround. It, it was. Um, uh, not the first time surround sound was employed in film. Um, it was the, uh, I believe, the first time that it was in the format that we kind of accept uh, as a standard now, 5.1. Right. Um, I believe maybe um, Superman might have been mixed in it, sure, but I don't right, think exactly, it was yeah. actually released um, in 5.1 in the theater. So I believe Apocalypse was the first one to release in that format. Um, and... It, yeah, it certainly um, changed the game, and they they basically pulled you know from you know other things that people had done, um, including uh, uh, Tamita the quad. That's great. Uh, you know the um, well, I guess what else, a musician that who had right. uh, released uh, in quad, and they were like, right. okay, we want this to sound like that, but then you know Walter said, we well we need the dialogue to be in the center, so <laughs> yeah. let's get that. And then Francis also wanted the low end, you know, for the explosions and all that. So then there's five point one. Yeah, some, there's a wonderful clip that I, I came across with an interview when when Francis talks about the influence that Tamita had. At one point, I guess he wanted to use Tamita's electronic disc, the, the planets. And so it's just looking at kind of like the information about it. It was, I guess at some point he was going to be brought on as the composer, but he was busy, but he still had an influence on the project because the quad then influenced a 5-1. Well, that was a very, that was a turning point because, you know, as you know, Apocalypse Mix was the basis of the five-point mix, which is standard today. We invented that. And uh, it was all because I went to Japan and I, I met, I remember Tomita? Tomita was uh, early uh, synthesis, and there was a record called Snowflakes Are Falling, which was, I think, WC 
all synthesized. And I got once Walter Murch, I came back very enthusiastic about this record, and I got Walter Murch and George Lucas, everyone, they all come over my house in, in, in San Francisco, and I had a screening room, and I said, okay, I want to show you something fantastic. And I put them all in the room, and I shut off the lights and made them listen to the whole record in the dark. <laughs> They thought I was totally nuts, but they, Walter got it. He says, yeah, we could make movies with that kind of, uh, and that was the basis of the, uh, I had wanted Tomita to do the soundtrack of Apocalypse, but in the end, uh, you know, it took him like three years to make that record and he couldn't, uh, his contract, uh, he couldn't do it. So we did it ourselves with about an army of synthesists in San Francisco. So Apocalypse and, and the Grateful Dead participated as well. It was a, it was a really coming together of, a, of, a, of a sound, uh, what, was, what influenced sound going forward well into the future. You know, I say there, there's a there's a cue that, as typically happens, there's a <laughs> uh, a, a scene that I'm, you can basically hear host the planets. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's it's a riff on that, and uh, so almost certainly that scene was temped with that, and then uh, the composer, you know, re as often happens, was asked to right. write something like that, <laughs> and so it has this sort of you know odd time signature and mm -hmm. uh, you know driving rhythm. So for you, uh, being that you've had different opportunities to be around this project, to be in the presence of this project, when the opportunity came up to work on this new, new Redux, Redux, whatever, 40th edition, um, when and how did that conversation come about and how did it land in your in your lap? Uh, it was first, uh, the first person who approached me was James McCoskey, who's the archivist at uh, American Zoetrope. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he let me know that they're they were planning to re-release Apocalypse Now in the 40th anniversary um, edition, and uh, they wanted to do an Atmos uh, mix for it, mm -hmm. um, which obviously hadn't been done. Um, so you know he he approached me I think because of my familiarity with the the material, and also I think he had talked with Walter Murch, and and Walter had suggested that I could maybe take the lead on uh, doing the Atmos mix and. You know, Walter would be involved to, to listen and give suggestions, but, um, you know, kind of wanted me to take the lead on that. So that's sort of how it landed in my lap. And then, of course, it became something a little larger. We ended up doing a, a restoration, which we'll probably get into, but um, but that's sort of the genesis of it, yeah. When was that conversation that James re reached out to you? Uh, that was, uh, let me think, probably, you know, it was, it was about a year ago, um, spring actually okay. of last year um but then we didn't really connect until <laughs> late summer and then the work began in early fall and so when you guys have those early conversations james who has a long history of with zoetrope and mm -hmm. as an archivist yeah like we were um, talking about right before we recorded there's been many different iterations of formats we were saying there's uh the laser disc there was the Umatic was it? Even? Or uh, no, it was no it? Uh, v well, VHS obviously. VHS, uh, right. You know, beta. beta right, <laughs> there was right. also this amazing format called uh, Spectrovision, okay. I believe, uh, video disc format, which I think is pretty much literally a, a record, an LP that's in a, a, a case, and it had, uh, you know, a, I believe, an analog video uh, signal on it. So 
I'm curious. From the early eighties, I believe. <laughs> the noise floor must have been just beautiful. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, like, for, so with the conversation, where do you guys start? Where, what are your stems? What do you go back to to even use as reference? What do you use for production, like to to work off of? Yeah, I mean, ideally, you would go back to stems, but no stems were created. Um, so, you know, we we went back to um, we wanted to find the best sources, basically, mm-hmm. and we could simply use the source that was uh, created uh, in 1996 uh, for the LaserDisc version that Walter made for uh, 5.1 okay. um, uh, in 1996. Yeah. <clears throat> and then uh, it was transferred in 2000, but uh, it had been transferred at the time at 44.1 16 bit. bit, Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Which was, you know, pretty state of the art at the time, but uh, really isn't now. And uh, so I thought, well, at least we could retransfer this at 96K and 24 bit. So what did you transfer? I mean, what what are you going to work off of then? Um, So, yeah, so we, you know, we went back and and found that element and we retransferred it. And sure enough, it sounds a lot better. But then I also wanted to, you know, see, is there a better source and uh, there's an interesting history of the the master of apocalypse now so uh, essentially in 79 august 79 they finished the mix they made two six track masters they sent one to um uh, to to uh, be used as the source for the 70 millimeter mm-hmm. they put the other in the archive and both of those masters were lost forever and never found Mm. so when walter went to do this version in 96 Mm -hmm. uh he went looking for the best source well it turns out he had it it was a an x copy so one analog generation removed and he had uh, received this from someone uh basically they had sent a six track x copy to london Mm mm-hmm to be used uh, as a reference when they made the foreign dubs mm. uh, into other languages, and uh, it was essentially a guide track, right? Oh you, could, you could think of it as that, but yeah. it's a it's a one generation copy of the master, mm-hmm. uh, and so they treated it just as we often treat guide tracks. When mm-hmm. we're done, we throw it away. So they literally threw away all these rolls of mag in the dumpster. Oh, and luckily for us, there was um, someone who had worked on the film, I believe it was Les Hodgson, mm-hmm. uh, was in London at that studio and spotted uh, in the dumpster uh-huh. this uh, kind of, they had this color coding system so they could look into, uh, so they could look at it and have all this information based on the color code. But it made this very distinctive visual look and he saw that those colors in the dumpster and was like oh uh i'm gonna i think he came back later that night (laughs) and (laughs) put it in his car and took it home and i it's not illegal if you're preserving history exactly (laughs) and so he he ended up uh you know delivering that to walter and that became the source for the 5-1 uh mix that walter did in 96 okay uh and then we transferred in um uh, 2000. Um, so uh, I thought, well, we could probably go back one more analog generation if we mm. did this. The reason um, they had to do that in 96, by the way, was um, the film was originally released in this Dolby format called Format 43, <laughs> which is um, this kind of odd uh, uh, cross-patching, cross-wiring of the channels 
basically the goal is to accommodate at the time there were theaters that had mono surrounds mm -hmm. rather than stereo surrounds and they said okay well let's put the mono surround on one channel let's put the stereo surrounds on two other channels let's take the subwoofer information and we'll band pass it and we'll put it on the split surround channels and so then Basically, you couldn't release this as a straight transfer. You had to decode it. Yeah. And uh, Dan Sperry at Dolby, you know, we went to him and said, uh, do you know anything about format 43? And he said, oh, geez, uh, sure. Yeah, here's here's what we have. And he sent us two different schematic drawings that had slightly different information on it. One of them was literally hand-drawn, and the other was... Um, this sort of uh, dot matrix computer printout. But he insisted that the hand-drawn one was the official one. It's so funny how <laughs> so, yeah, the, the things that are written on napkins tend to be like the, the real source. Exactly. And so that was, in fact, the and, – and we studied it further and it, it basically difference was uh, there was like a safety band that they put in, in um, after the fact to, you know uh, – protect the that mid-range uh build up but we we basically remade this napkin format 43 uh spec you know using uh digital filters and huh. we were able to decode from that earlier analog generation um into uh uh, into digital. So, uh, but then we found this other element, <laughs> tantalizing, mm -hmm. labeled uh, June 79, which everyone had overlooked because the, the mix was uh, finished in August. So mm -hmm. they said, well, that's old. It's old, yeah. So that doesn't, that doesn't count. And I thought, <laughs> well, let's, let's look a little closer. And it turned out written in the box uh, were uh, updates they had punched into it. And the latest updates were in the beginning of August. Mm -hmm. So then we thought, okay, this, uh, maybe this was like a working copy or something. Mm -hmm. um, this is worth transferring. Let's. So basically, I just transferred um, the 1996 mix, the dumpster X copy we mm -hmm. called it, and then this we called the June '79 master. Um, transferred all the, these elements, sunk them all up, and then I could go and compare all three sources and figure out what is the best source. And I made mm. the decision to respect all of the creative choices that had been made all the way through, you know, that 96 mix that Walter did. And so I painstakingly went through channel by channel. Literally, I would just mute all the channels except center channel mm -hmm. and listen three or four seconds, three or four seconds, mm -hmm. three or four seconds to all the different masters, make sure the content was the same, see if there was any subtle level difference or anything like that, and remake all, you know, any move that Walter had made in 96 or that they had... Um, any changes that had happened between this June 79 and this Dumpster X copy, I would make sure that uh, they were identical and that the creative decisions were preserved. Um, and then I would, after I'd done the center channel, I'd do the left-right. Sometimes if things were a little uh, off, I would just listen left channel only. I went through every single channel, every single inch of this track just to make sure that all of the content was the same. And so what you're hearing is, you know, what they intended, uh, but from the earliest possible source. And it turned out I was able to go back two analog generations for 87% of the movie. Incredible. So this this uh, June 79 master was valid for 87% mm. of the movie. And uh, yeah, so this um, 
It's pretty dramatic, actually. <laughs> I'll say, you know, uh, all the way through from the very beginning, the symbols. Just listening to how mm-hmm. the symbols sound and listening to the hi hat close on the the doors. You know, it was so pristine in the um, uh, uh, in, in the earlier master, and had kind of become a little mushy in the in the later copy. And the voiceover just uh, mm-hmm. sort of was a little swimmy by the time it got to the second. You know, it's it's uh, LCR, so you mm-hmm. know, center channel mostly, but shouldered left, right to have kind of a full, fuller sound. And you know, the image kind of got a little swimmy mm-hmm. um, by the second analog generation. And by going back to generations, it just locks into place. Tightened up, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah tightened up, yeah. and you just feel like you. You know, took a couple steps closer to Martin Sheen, uh-huh. uh, and then the most dramatic thing for me was the you know we did this, as I said, painstakingly inch by inch through the whole track. The very last scene of the film is the PBR, the boat in the rain, mm. and I'm listening back and forth, and I'm like, <laughs> this is very different. Yeah, and all the way through I'm trying to decide is this a creative choice or is this the product of the degradation that I'm you know dusting off and it just it was something that was so obviously just analog generation loss had turned the rain into pink noise oh my gosh and by going back these you know uh, to this earlier source it just had depth and it had detail uh, you know that that rain has mm-hmm. um, and it just was a, a beautiful way to kind of mm-hmm. conclude the process was of the restoration yeah so um, I mean, you've done all this work to kind of have a, a clean slate to have a canvas to work off of okay here's the film this is the best iteration that we can come up with what was the conversation like then with between you and Francis and the rest of the team about all right how do we want to handle this like because um, I know some of the process of I remember seeing the footage of you playing back some of the, the stuff for Francis yeah. in his room and uh, his response and kind of how he was. But like in the early stages, like how hands on was he or off was he with kind yeah. of yeah, in mixed the, up? In the beginning, uh, you know, I think this is also typical of the way uh, Francis approaches film. He, you know, values sound highly, but he also trusts his, you know, people to do the work. And mm-hmm. then he wants to come in at the end and experience it like a viewer. And he's he's so good at just cluing into what matters and mm. letting us deal with the detail work, mm-hmm. basically. So, um, and one of those, you know, trusted folks is Walter Murch. And, you know, Walter had, um, you know, so basically now we're talking more about um, the uh, the Atmos upmix, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the the restoration, you know, was uh, something that we did and and took great care with. And then, you know, I played it for Walter, and he was very happy with mm-hmm. what we had done. Well, I mean, what what type of cleanup did you have to do? Like, some of the um, transfers would introduce maybe some stuff, but like, what did you find needed to be cleaned up, and how did you clean some of that stuff up? Oh, so yes, yeah, so let's stay back on the re- the restoration then. Um, so, the things that I was finding. Uh, First of all, just figuring out what Walter had done um, in 96. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had told me that um, when they did the the original mix, uh, they had mixed in a small room. And so... There's a theme here of uh, working on it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They had mixed in a small room. And so when they went to master it, um, you know, they gave instructions to raise the center channel 2 dB. So... uh, Who who was that from? This is... um, 
uh, you know, Walter back mm. in 1979, mm-hmm. listening to the uh, the transfer to 70 millimeter, listening mm. in other theaters, and they basically decided, you know what? Because we were in this small room, we kind of mixed this the dialogue a little low. It's let's low, yeah. let's just boost overall 2 dB mm-hmm. and and release that. Um, and so that's that's how the original track sounded. So in 96 he said, you know, okay, I'm going to do that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but I'm all, you know, he went through and he touched a, a few other levels and, you know, smoothed things out a little bit. Um you know, probably had better tools. The mm-hmm. automation was a little less cumbersome than it was back <laughs> sure. then, although they did have amazingly automation back in 79 for faders. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, he, you know, massaged the the center channel a little bit and I basically went through and and redid you know all, all of those moves. Uh but the other kind of things that I I discovered was, you know, he had added reverb in um 96 to three scenes. Um uh-huh. and so I wanted to go from the earlier master, but I also needed to preserve the work. And so I, I mm. thought, well, okay, what is what is he likely to have used? And I thought, well, most likely a 480. Yeah, you know, the Lexicon, Lexicon 480, is, sure. It's just the, the standard thing that everybody right. has. And so, you know, this is the um, the first scene where they come to get him in the, mm-hmm. um, you know, to... Uh, in, in the bedroom and then later in the briefing scene these mm-hmm. were two of the of the scenes and i thought okay medium room medium room halfway <laughs> classic right so, right yeah so i put that onto this yeah. earlier master and it was perfect oh my god and i was like wait okay that it can't be perfect that right? was too easy I, yeah, that yeah. was too easy so i checked a few other patches no wrong 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 back to medium room yep that's i it. mean there's only so. how, many, how many options were there on that <laughs> unit i mean there's exactly. yeah but medium room for sure it's you know it's classic and so you know that's that's one of the things and then um, it, there was just a very small amount of noise reduction Walter had done uh, okay. pretty much he, he didn't do a tremendous amount in okay. terms of noise reduction and so therefore I didn't also you know do much in terms okay. of noise reduction but the briefing scene had a little bit of additional noise reduction um, there might have been one other scene that that did as well um, mm. so those kind of things I was discovering and then. Uh, Bad punches, yeah. <laughs> which one? Which 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 scenes? Like all the, uh, the, I mean, there's punches everywhere. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly in the um, uh, the landing on the beach. I remember one, and then I think maybe in the flight of the Valkyries, there might have been a couple. Okay, and you know, so we would find these bad punches, and by going to an earlier source, we could get rid of those bad punches. Yeah. So um, make them all seamless. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, those are the sorts of things I'm discovering as I as I go. Obviously, you've worked in Atmos now for a few years. Mm-hmm. You've had experience with it. How do you carry over from the, the, the stems you had? How do you create those into objects? How do you mm-hmm. how do you break things apart to fit in an Atmos environment? Yeah. So again, we we didn't have stems. Yeah. We like had stems. Already. We had stems for Redux because right. you know that was done in two thousand, and so we mm-hmm. did split those out into stems. But for um, the original film, there were no stems. They had uh, what they called pre-dubs and combines, mm-hmm. uh, which were, I guess, really more like pre-dubs because they would have required a tremendous amount of remixing to make them make any sense, and mm-hmm. that was just far too daunting. And plus, we didn't have. Um, uh, discrete music, um, so I kind of had to use the the six track um, as the source, um, 
And the directive that Walter had given me when, you know, we set out to do this was basically uh, people who hear this, hear the Atmos mix should recognize the mix as the mix. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we shouldn't be going and, you know, adding bells and whistles or doing things, you know, just to uh, for the flash of it, that it should be uh, respectful of the original mix. And mm-hmm. certainly that's my approach to, to uh you know, this sort of thing anyways, you know, there's nothing wrong with what they did. In fact, it's, it's still a benchmark and it holds up incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still a standard for, you know, what we do. And I Mm -hmm. frankly think there's things that we should still learn from the mix that they did. Mm. Uh, We can get into that more later, Mm -hmm. the the aesthetics of it. But, um, but then, you know, so then what do, how do I create a, a, an Atmos mix only using a five, one source? Well, one of the actually this goes to the aesthetics one of the mm. aesthetics that they had was that um they weren't aggressive in their use of surrounds mm-hmm. um this may have been partly uh you know a function of you know not being able to trust necessarily the theaters to reproduce everything of course, correctly yeah. but i know it's more than that because you know walters talked to me uh, about his approach to surrounds and essentially you know the idea is if you fill up every speaker all the time, yeah, you end up with nothing. You know, mm-hmm. you're you're, you're Des- desensitizing. You, yeah, yeah, you become desensitized because there's always sound, surround sound coming to you from every angle, and so right. when there's something happening in the surrounds, you don't notice it. Whereas if you are intentional and you put, you know, your film mostly on the screen where, frankly, I think it belongs, mm-hmm. and then you choose your moments where you engage the surrounds. Then it's exciting, and I think that's true probably with Atmos too. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think this is a mistake that we make on, especially on bigger budget films today. Mm-hmm. Is we we have the resources, we have you know the crew to cut every single right. sound, and then we think that it all belongs, or it has to be fit in, and we have the speakers to put it in. And I think that's something that you know we should really internalize. You know this this lesson of. Um, holding back so that when you use it it's it has an effect mm-hmm. um and so that um that was true of apocalypse now it, it mm-hmm. for instance when you get to the flight of the valkyries this big expensive sure. shot yeah. you know of the helicopters it's pretty much lcr amazing and it sounds incredible it's exciting yeah but it's still up on the screen yeah and then uh then there are moments within the flight of the Valkyries where a helicopter flies around you, and that's exciting because mm-hmm. it's something. It's the next level. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a, a, a another. Um, it's a new uh, use of the of the sonic space, and and your ear catches it and is ex- and you're excited. And mm-hmm. so that also meant that when I went to do the Atmos version, it wasn't so hard. I didn't necessarily need the stems because the events that were in the the LSRS were fairly discreet. Yeah. And also the um the intention of the pan is pretty clear because there's the helicopter on the screen mm-hmm. and there it is and coming in from this side or that side. And so I can tell you know, or it's coming from the front and going to the back. So essentially I can let the um <clears throat> Uh, take the LSRS, sit it into the Atmos bed as if it's, you know, midway <laughs> between the sides and the back and it just is the the five one. But then as an event happens, I can tip that toward, you know, I can meet the helicopter pan mm-hmm. coming from the front. I can meet it in the side. I can take it through all the way to the back mm. and then come back to that midpoint where it becomes the five one again. So I can mm-hmm. basically add resolution mm. 
to the pan and do this. And that, that part of it, I can do just in the bed. But then obviously there are times where like, you know, it actually would be really cool as an object. So I'm going to take, uh, let's say the helicopter flies in from the uh, top right. I'm going to take the right channel and I'm going to momentarily turn that into an object. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll be panned hard right at the beginning. So it's seamless. And then I'll do a, a little move where I tip it up into the ceiling and mm. then land the helicopter down into frame again, and then hand it back to the bed. Um, so that's essentially how I did it. And mm -hmm. I would, uh, I could do that easily with the left, the right, left surround or right surround. The center channel obviously has There's a very place for it. <laughs> dialogue. Right. Uh, but the one thing that we did have was we had an M&E mm. and we had a mono dialogue, uh, a track. Oh, okay. So there were a, a handful of places where, let's say, a helicopter landed from um, above into the center channel. Mm -hmm. I could take, I could briefly go to the M&E. Mm. I could leave the dialogue anchored in the center, and then I could land that helicopter as an object mm. into frame. You never had phase issue, phase issues, or no. kind of wow. Um, no, because I was only using the existing channels. Okay. And I was simply take, I was adjusting the pan position. Incredible. Um, that's that's, that's yeah. amazing. So now that you have kind of this Atmos version to work off of, when you show that to Francis, did he have things that he wanted to change or improve upon or readjust differently? Uh, you know, he didn't really have um, those sorts of change. There were things that he asked for, yeah. um, but they weren't so much about the panning. Okay. I think, you know, again, I think because of my approach, because I was respectful of the original pans, I played it for him and I, you know, played before and after and showed him how <laughs> the pans now had more resolution. More resolution. Maybe yeah, they, yeah. They, they, now they move through the ceiling. Now right. they move through the sides. And, you know, particularly the ghost helicopter, you know, we should mention that too. The mm. sound that Richard Beggs created um, was uh, panned from the back right all the way to the front. Um, we had found in the masters that it was originally panned from the back this, left. This is from the opening you're talking about? This is from the opening. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so we had found that in the original 79 mm -hmm. masters, it had been panned from the back left all the way around to the front. Mm -hmm. And then in uh, 96, Walter had uh, panned it from the back right all the way around to the front. Uh -huh. And so now I'm in Atmos and I'm like, yeah. let's go from the sidewall right, the right yeah, 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 all the way yeah, around yeah, yeah. and let's go through now, let's make it an object. Yeah. And let's go through every single speaker. And I think that's, uh, that's another thing too that um, was a guiding principle as I went through is if they could have, would they have? Mm, mm -hmm, and sure. uh, because I, again, I don't want to do things that, yeah. you know, there's nothing wrong with this track. But I mean, right? we, we have Francis, Walter, Richard yeah. Beggs. These, Richard these are all Beggs, people. Mark yeah. Mark Berger. These yeah. are all people that are, are, are still around in here. And you can, and that's the magical thing about doing this now is that you actually have, um, you have that confidence that, that you're not just making assumptions. Absolutely. Yeah. So we played it for all of them. Uh, Richard Beggs, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I played him the ghost helicopter and the pan that I had done. And he had a very slight little tweak that he wanted sure. to it and, you know, made it better. And yeah. uh, so then it went from the sidewall around to the front. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it was what they would have done if they could. And, uh, you right. know, I just did a, a presentation at Dolby with Richard. And mm -hmm. Richard talked about, you know, the, basically this exact subject. And he mm -hmm. said, you know, the thing is you always have the idea in your head of what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And then you go to your tools and you do the best approximation you can of that. And certainly the ghost helicopter is an example of 
would they have loved to go through every speaker in the mm-hmm. array? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but they can't. So they just pan it from the back right to the back left to the front, and that's a beautiful thing. Mm. Um, so that certainly was the right choice. You know, that was something that if he had a an Atmos panner in '79, he would have done exactly what. I did, and then he, you know, we did together. It's it's so, one of those like the what ifs of if we could time travel and give, you know, re reimagine the Godfather or yeah. <laughs> the conversation. Um, one of the other kind of missing elements to talk about is uh, the low frequency channel. Yeah, because obviously Coppola has an incredible passion for how that makes the audience feel, yeah. and how that's a wonderful storytelling tool. And and there's another. St- part of this conversation, which is now we're introducing even lower, which is the whole conversation about Meyer Sound's involvement. But talk to me, because Atmos in itself is a full range yeah. system. So just from Atmos alone, you're enabling your LFC and everything else to carry throughout. In other, in, in other ways, it probably were considered. Yeah. So, you know, obviously Atmos brings you the increased panning, um, increased resolution in the panning, much mm-hmm. more options. Um, in terms of the subwoofer, there's a, a great history with Meyer Sound and Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. which is that uh, back in 79, you know, they're conceiving this, what became the 5.1 format, and uh, they wanted that 0.1 speaker to be something that was robust and was able to really, you know, shake the room. And so they had uh, asked uh, Meyer Sound, John Meyer, and, mm-hmm. um his company to create a subwoofer for Apocalypse Now. Um, And so he did. And this was a a subwoofer that uh, they then carried around to the 70 millimeter (laughs) installations. Uh, You know, I think there were few enough uh, 70 millimeter um, projection Mm -hmm. uh, screening rooms that they were able to do that. So they they outfitted all of those rooms with this brand new at the time Meyer speaker. I'm looking Mm -hmm. here at the notes. The 650 subwoofer is what... I guess the product name was. Okay, yeah, that, I think that's right. <laughs> and uh, it, it, so that speaker went down to about 38 hertz, Yeah. Um, you know, which was fantastic at the time. Um, but of course that wasn't enough. It was, well. <laughs> <laughs> at the time, I mean, at the time that was, you know, incredible. Absolutely. Mm. And so then all, uh, all these years later, uh, Meyer uh, says, you know what, we've been experimenting with these very low frequencies we've been mm-hmm. doing this project i think it was for nasa yeah exactly where, where they're like uh creating this infrasonic sound that just is is basically vibration it's down they uh, the new vlfc exactly yeah. uh, can go down to 13 hertz mm-hmm. which is you know below human hearing where we can hear down to 20 and this goes down to 13 well i'll, I'll tell you you can feel you can feel 13 down to 13 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you know they they had been doing this project for uh uh, NASA and what I love about um, Meyer as a company is they are they're always just so much about pushing the technology forward and mm-hmm. you know getting better and better and they work in you know live sound and they work for you know um, in scientific applications and but they are always bringing it back to the creative mm-hmm. and you know so they're they do this thing for NASA and then they're like what would that sound like in a theater yeah and you know they had been aware that there are these message boards, you know, where people are tweaking out on their home theater mm-hmm. systems and they're, they are finding subwoofers that in the home can go down below 20 hertz. Adjusting and, that crossover. And people are yeah. getting excited about content that they're finding um, 
that you know has this low frequency information. I think Wonder Woman was one of them. Okay. Hurt, Hurt Locker. <laughs> these are you know there's these ghost tracks. These yeah this this low frequency information that's down there yeah. that I can almost guarantee the sound designers never heard. Yeah. Because we're sitting in environments where you know if we have a good speaker it goes down to twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if if there's information down to thirteen. You know, it, it's not something that we were aware of. It just happened to get through. So I think one one of the really fun moments was um, looking back at some of the video footage from when you guys were mixing this. And um, it was the first time that you had played back the low frequency material for him. And I, oh, think, yeah. I think in your mind, yeah. you were trying to obviously honor the original take and maybe be more conservative but like what what happened what what, what was the yeah. funny thing that came out of it yeah so you know it's it's one of those moments where i i did a first pass with the vlf material and you know it's the one thing that we're adding to the track because uh, other than that all of the atmos work uh there's no new material it's just a finer resolution it's a it's uh panning mm-hmm. but it, it's the same content um but the vlf you know is actually something that we're adding and you know i'm very respectful of the original track and didn't really want to go too far with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I did, uh, you know, my pass on what I thought the VLF could be and, you know, played it for Francis and he was really, uh, excited about it and very encouraging of no, go further, like mm. take it further. Like, yeah, no, that one could be, that could be louder. Yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Just make that, let's let that one shake. Mm-hmm. And that, and you know what, there's this other place too. You could maybe look at a couple other places and, you know, those explosions over there, you just give them a little bit of a jolt, you know, like that yeah. kind of thing. So he, he really, uh, I would say creatively freed my hand in terms of the low frequency content, which mm-hmm. I, I think I needed personally, I needed him, you know, the permission, to, yeah. the permission to do yeah. it, you know, and I had, you know, permission from Walter, you know, to, to touch the track, but I, again, it's just a, a respect that I have for what they did and not wanting to be flashy about any of this stuff or just because it's there to use it. But Francis was genuinely excited about these, you know, new Meyer speakers and the, the extended range that we could, uh, you know, use. And so he, he said, go for it. That I think would give you the reassurance that you can say that's from Francis. That's his direction. People always say, oh, was this the mixers being taking extra license? And in the case, that's not that's not. How it's it not was. the case. It's yeah. directly from him. Yeah. yeah. So anything that's added really is, you know, Francis saying, I, I want this. This film is a wonderful example of um, what what the potential is of thinking about movie experiences of also the sensation of of the feel. Yeah, uh, I think of, you know, I think we should definitely talk about some of the, the parts where you applied this, but like thinking of, of the B-52, you know, strikes. Yeah, the, the napalm drop. The napalm drop, the, yeah. The arc light. Um, yeah. These are two of the, uh, you know, classic moments of subwoofer in yeah. the film. And this is still people line up their reference rooms with this, you know, <laughs> to show off their new subwoofer. Right. They, they play the, the napalm drop. So, so how much energy can you put into that channel? Like, how, like, what did you do to enhance the pre-existing? Yeah. So w- the first thing we did was just uh, did some research into what what's there. You know, mm-hmm. what is there actually already information there that we can just play and we don't uh-huh. have to do anything. Yeah. Turned out that they had basically filtered it around 30 hertz. Oh, wow. Um, so there is all this great low end content, but they had intentionally lopped it off mm-hmm. probably to protect you know, systems, yeah. subwoofers. Um, so they weren't asking this, you know, wonderful new speaker that went down to 38, <laughs> yeah. you know, th- they weren't taxing it too hard. Sure. Right. So 
they lopped it off at 30. So we realized, well, you know, uh, we have this wonderful speaker that goes down to 13. We're going to have to derive or create content that goes that sure. extends that range down. And so that's something um, Jim McKee, I, I should mention too, the mm-hmm. the folks that worked with me, and it's, I don't want this to sound like I did this single-handedly. Yeah. This yeah, was, yeah. was uh, uh, you know, I was the re-recording mixer, but um, Colin Guthrie was mm-hmm. uh, working with me on this and he was there with me the entire time and really uh, instrumental in, you know, getting this done. Uh, Jim McKee uh, was also uh, did a lot of the transfers. He also prepared a lot of this low frequency content, and he derived some as like a subsynth uh, from the existing subwoofer track. And that's I would say mostly what we used was just uh, taking the existing track and a sort of octave generating, uh, you know, subsynth. In some cases, pitch shifting <laughs> that material as well to get it even lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some cases I believe he used some uh, low frequency tone generator. Oh, great! Um, you know that that kind of uh, source, uh, and then provided basically all of that to me to mix in. Um, I mean, thirteen and of itself is like uh, to record something that low is different than recreating it through you know, tone generation or other types of kind of creative endeavors. Yeah, and a lot, yeah. I think a lot of, a lot of mics won't even yeah, won't go record down that, yeah. that low um, or have been intentionally, you know, high-passed um, right. so that they don't have that information. Right. I can't imagine there's libraries of, of B-52 drop bomb no. droppings <laughs> that have frequency that, that low. Yeah. Exactly. So we had to recreate that. And, um, you know, again, it was mostly derived from the existing subtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, it, you know, when we first heard that we put these up in the um, – these VLFC speakers up in the mix in Rutherford. And this is an old barn. It's an old barn. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a wood structure. And when these things couple with the wood structure, it is, it just literally shakes the room. And we, I think we knocked pictures off the, the wall downstairs in the library. And, uh, uh, it is a visceral experience and it is, you know, exactly what Francis wanted, you know, Mm -hmm. the arc light, uh, uh, you hear it, be- mm-hmm. you s- feel it before you hear it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, was, was the idea. Um, and you know, it, it was exactly what the track wanted. Um, I will say th- this is a very, very powerful frequency range so much so that we really couldn't work on it for more than about 20 minutes at a mm. time before you start to physically feel a little queasy. So it's something that I'm excited to be, you know, part of the, the, palette part of the range you know that we can use um creatively but it's also something we have to be very um careful about and you know use it uh intentionally and not but, not abuse the audience so you know yeah there is a physiological response that it's creating you know uh, john and helen meyer uh talk about the um you know, it's it's basically an, a, an adrenaline shot, and I believe Metallica is using these VLFC oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. speakers oh, in, yeah. in lieu of pyrotechnics. So mm-hmm. your pyrotechnics, you know, have become are somewhat dangerous, and so they can achieve the same result by filling their stadium with I, I don't even know how many like dozens of these VLFC speakers, and they can generate a pulse that feels every bit mm-hmm. as you know like a pyrotechnic you know yeah um, I, I think that's a good point of yeah. uh the uh, of obviously keeping the audience in mind but fortunately in this film it's not like long long extended sequences where exactly. we, ha- we have people you know now going to cinema and seeing movies and complaining that it's too loud it's too 
embraceive or, or, or just like it, it, it ruins the movie, the movie watching experience for mm. people. And, and I think um, this is obviously a great example of, of walking that line in a very creative but delicate way that yeah and i think it's it it again goes back to intentional use of sound and that that is what good sound design is i believe is the intentional use of sound and rather than just like making it an incoherent mess which it it could Mm -hmm. become so easily um you know saying okay this is the moment where we're going to shock the audience with a low frequency pulse Mm -hmm. and it'll have this visceral effect and we'll connect them to the story and the characters in this way and you know that's that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think it, I think it's evident because I believe right before the bombing drop, it's it's pretty quiet. It's a it's a moment of kind yeah. of reprieve, right? It it holds before you hear that. Uh, certainly before ArcLight, it's mm-hmm. just voiceover essentially. Yeah, uh, and then before the napalm drop, we've come out of the um, uh, you know the Valkyrie scene, but there has been a little time where they're down on mm-hmm. the ground and they're talking a little bit. So yeah, it, there's definitely it's, and yeah. that that that's exactly it, leaving space and you know using silence and or quiet, you know, mm-hmm. as contrast. I, I think that's that's what good design is about. For considerations, because this premiered at Tribeca, is that correct? Correct. The first time. So with the Tribeca, obviously you're thinking of um, the cinematic. I mean, and, and there has been a lot of film screenings, and they're still going on now. Um, so if, <laughs> if we're listening to this, go see it in the theaters because I think that's going to be an incredible experience. But then you also have the consideration of the home release, which is yeah. this remastered, restored 4K uh, Atmos mix. So yeah. what's the subtle differences between the two in your mind? I'm sorry, between the but between the at- cinema version and the home version. You know what? <laughs> I, I uh, we very often make home theater mixes. Mm-hmm. Um, but not always. Sometimes the uh, you know the original mix goes through. I made the decision to release the theatrical on the home the- as the home theater mix. I just want that mix to be the mix. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that I can really do to it to make it better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's already such a, a, a thoughtful track. Um, I feel like that was the right thing to do. We did the you know the technical steps of adjusting the surround levels mm-hmm. to accommodate you know. Uh, 85 all the way around, you know, so that the surrounds play at the correct level. But other than that, the the mix is the mix. And so if you have a good home theater system, you can hear the mix, you know, as as it was done uh, by, you know, Walter <laughs> and Richard and, and Mark. And then... Uh, through your hands. Through my hands and, uh, you know, uh, this restoration process. And you can hear it in its pristine form. And, um, yeah, we actually... Uh, because uh, you know, I care about this stuff. Uh, if you listen to the five-one um, mix of the original nineteen seventy-nine cut, as it is on the uh, the Blu-ray, mm-hmm. that is the closest thing to just a straight restoration. It doesn't have the the low frequency content. Okay, uh, I wanted a version to exist that was really just that five-one mix, mm-hmm. as uh, hands-off as I can be. Mm-hmm. Um, if you listen to the Atmos mix, it has, you know, the VLF, it mm-hmm. has uh, uh, obviously the Atmos. And then if you listen to the other versions of the film, you know, Redux or Final Cut, mm-hmm. I, you know, I felt like those were um, changed enough from the original that I could, you know, apply these other, let's call it enhancements, you know, to mm-hmm. the to the tracks. Um, but I just wanted that one, you know, 5-1 version on the Blu-ray to be just what it was. People love to go back and be yeah. like, "Oh, like the this is not as good as the original." I, I see. I mean, I probably just hear it too much of looking at people talking about Star Wars or something yeah. like, "Oh, they've ruined the master." But in this case, you guys are going to the extent of 
there is no variation, which which is exactly. really exciting. Which yeah. this ultimately we don't know. It's it's a hard thing to say. This ultimately could be the final version because of what? <laughs> do you, I mean? Can you foresee ever revisiting this project? <laughs> is it, I mean, it just seems like I'm sure when they were doing you know the DVD or the laser disc or the you know Blu-ray, they were like, yeah. oh, this is it. This, yeah. this is where we, this is where it ends. Yeah, it's it, it's a fantastic question <laughs> uh, because I think there have been so many times you know in the last twenty years since Redux that you know we thought. Okay, this really like that's it. Yeah. Um, but I think even then, if you had asked me about the audio, I I knew that these other masters existed and didn't know what was on them, mm-hmm. but I knew that there was at least some possibility there. At this point, it would be hard to imagine what mm-hmm. more we could do. When I mean, we transferred everything at ninety six twenty four, the visual restoration was done at four um, K. Um, I believe, and then uh, you know the color grade was a an HDR Dolby Vision color mm-hmm. grade, and um, you know I do know that I've used the best sources. So, <laughs> what more can be done? I don't know, but uh, you know maybe there'll be another format out there, and we'll see another opportunity. I would be I'd be so surprised, but it's hard to it's it's hard to imagine what where technology will go and how that will influence the work that you're doing. Yeah, exactly. So lastly, just looking back on your journey and relationship with Zootrope, with Francis, um, what are some of the takeaways of sharing uh, space with these artists, with Merge, with Beggs, with you know Mark Berger and Francis and everyone else that you've come across? What are some of the unique things about how they work and how they listen? And Yeah, I think, I think what is inspiring is that these folks are still endlessly creative mm-hmm. and care deeply. So, you know, when I was playing back, you know, the work that I had done, it wasn't like, oh yeah, good enough or whatever. Right. It was like, oh, well, what about this? And why did you do that? And what, what about, you know, this other thing? And, you know, and and then we would make changes to, you know, address <laughs> the things that they were hearing. And, you know, I just think it would be so easy to rest on your laurels and say, you know, I just, I, we already made the greatest track ever. So let's, you know, (laughs) but no, they care. They, Mm -hmm. they're engaged. And, you know, Francis too, you know, he's, he sees the uh, apocalypse, you know, and I think rightfully so it's a, it's still a place that I can play. So, you know, when it comes to the final cut version, he can decide that, you know, I'm going to, take a few minutes out of the French plantation. I'm going to let that run mm-hmm. a little bit. In fact, what I really want is, and this, this is a, a change that ma- was made between Final Cut and Redux because mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. some of the scenes were taken out, but French plantation in particular was rethought a bit and he he did it really much more from Willard's point of view. Mm-hmm. And so I think before it was about getting this sort of information about you know the history and all this. And uh, so you heard a lot of the the French and, you know, they're arguing with each other and now they, they, they cut it short and they kept it more just Willard's at the table. He's sort of shell shocked and he's mm-hmm. sees this beautiful woman across from him, but you know, he's, he's off in his own world too. And so we, we actually, you know, played the mix a little bit differently where the voices they uh, you know, drop, they're not quite as sharp and clear. Like they, they get a little bit more into the reverb of the room and just, uh, you know, it all feels very naturalistic. I'm not going like stylized here, but it, it's definitely more the way you would play it as if let's stay with Willard and his point of view. And that's, that's a decision, you know, even at this late date, Francis, uh, 
wants to play with that and see mm-hmm. how will this affect the audience. So he's still thinking about that story. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, Pete, thank you so much for spending this time to talk about this amazing project that you have had. I, I, I think like I can't imagine being in the room by yourself, listening and looking at this material and just kind of thinking about how many people it's inspired and impacted to get them in, into movie making and to yeah. sound. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems like just an incredible honor. I think you, you it, honored. It, yeah. it, it is absolutely an incredible honor. And it was an incredible experience to go through the track in that detail because, you know, I, I really did feel like um, there there's a legacy here that needs to be honored. And I, I'll tell you, you know, the track completely holds up. It's something where, uh, you know, usually in the work that we do, we discover all the flaws. Well, I did discover, you know, <laughs> the flaws, the punch in here, the, the little, the reverb that was in the surrounds there, you know, that kind of thing. But none of the flaws matter. All of, all of the creative choices they made were impeccable. And it was absolutely an incredible honor to, to uh, you know, touch that material and to just try to uh, let their work shine through. Mm. It's, it's a beautiful release that they're doing. I'm just looking here at the fourth yeah. anniversary. It's a six disc edition. Yeah. And uh, I, I think, you know, for people who are thinking about that home system, now might be the time to invest because uh, <laughs> there's ever a time to hear a track at home. I can imagine your neighbors are going to be loving every moment. So, um, Pete, thank you so much. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I look forward to just hearing, hearing more from you in the future because... Uh, it's so it's so fun to talk about the projects that that you've had with Zoetrope and on, and on your own. So uh, thanks again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Mm-hmm.